He's the man who engineered the right-wing takeover of the courts. He's sitting on a $1.6 billion slush fund, and now he says he's coming for the rest of American politics and culture. I'm Matt Robeson. I'm not that guy, and I host Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, and of course on the Blue Amp channel. And I am delighted to once again welcome back one of the outstanding team of journalists at ProPublica who do so much amazing investigative work, and it's always just a thrill and a voyage of discovery to have one of these team folks on the show. And today we've got Andy Kroll, who's an investigative reporter for ProPublica, where he covers voting, elections, the courts, and other democracy issues. He's also the author of the book, a Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich, and The Age of Conspiracy, and Andy is fresh off of reporting, along with a couple of colleagues, a fascinating deep dive into the man whose name I withheld from you at the outset, Leonard Leo, who may be the most important figure that you maybe might have heard of in American politics. Andy Kroll, welcome to Beyond Politics. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I am really happy to have you. I wish we were not talking about this guy. He is fascinating. I will give you that. And you and I were talking before we got on the air about how hard it is with such a sprawling story like you have reported out. And I, I have to say, it is evident reading this, just how much work you have put into really capturing, not just like the records details, but the visual details, the stories um, that go behind the saga of this man who has engineered profound changes in American society through his stranglehold on the right-wing architecture of putting right-wing figures onto the courts. How would you sum up for people who maybe heard about Leonard Leo, what the story is here? I like to say that Leonard Leo is the most influential person in American politics over the last 40 years that you most likely have not heard of. He is someone who has operated just beyond the sort of television camera frame, just beyond the columns in the New York Times, someone who is hugely influential, who has had a hand in nominating or confirming all six of the conservative justices now on the Supreme Court, and someone who can really say that his legacy is this court and what it is doing in terms of its decisions touching every part of American life. And yet amazingly, his influence on the Supreme Court is just one piece of the puzzle. It, it is not this, the start and the end of his role and of his influence. It's really just one part of what Leonard Leo, a name that people love to hear because they can't believe his name is actually Leonard Leo. It's just one sort of element of his influence. And when we set out to do this project, as I just mentioned to you a second ago before we, we started taping, we approached Leonard Leo in a way that Robert Caro approached Robert Moses in his magisterial book, The Power Broker, so many decades ago. We approached Leo in that way because we believe that in the ways Robert Moses, an unelected, not particularly famous, behind-the-scenes power broker in New York City operated, Leonard Leo someone who has never been elected to higher office, never been a judge, never tried a case in court, has exerted a huge influence, not just the courts in America, but in the direction of American society. It's a wonderful comparison you're making. And actually, once you made it, it was like a head-slapping aha moment for me. Robert Moses, who never held a position higher than state parks commissioner, I right, believe, right, in right. New York State. 
and yet shaped, literally was the architect of the greatest city on earth. I mean, vying with, I don't know, Beijing and whatever, but that's the kind of figure, that's influence, and they operate in the same way. It's behind the scenes, and it's really digging into the details. It's being willing, the, the, the key that Carol points out to Moses's dark genius was he showed up to all the meetings, he read every darn page, and he always volunteered, I'll take the notes, I'll write the minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll write the details, and what you what comes through so clearly in your piece is that Leonard Leo is cut from the same cloth. Take us back a little bit. It it felt to me like what you were suggesting is while Leonard Leo was born in the 60s, he's really a creature of the late 80s. He is a creature of these bruising judicial fights that came with Robert Bork, the disappointment of the right and the failure of the nomination of Robert Bork, the bruising political battle over Clarence Thomas, and then the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, this string in about six years of watershed moments that really launched him. Is that read right? Yeah, no, that read is absolutely spot on. There are really, when you're writing a, a portrait of power, which is what we set out to do here, you look for those inflection points, those seminal moments that shaped your subject's view of politics, view of the legal system, a view of the world around them. And with Leonard Leo, it was very clear that there were those those two, three, four moments in the basically, I'd say mid-1992, which is the Casey decision, where you really have this formative period for him. And it's these massive events that we maybe listeners of the podcast will know in the sort of broader sense, but we see them through the eyes of our subject, Leonard Leo. And with the Bork defeat, when Robert Bork, the obviously controversial figure in the Nixon years with the Saturday Night Massacre, but then goes on to become this sort of titan in the conservative legal world because Bork and Scalia are the ones who pioneer this legal idea of originalism. We can only interpret the Constitution the way the founders wrote it at the time and what they intended at the time and nothing more. So Bork is in Leonard Leo's world. He is an, an icon, a giant, an intellectual hero. And when Bork is effectively humiliated when he's defeated uh, as a Supreme Court nominee put up by Reagan, that is a, a scarring moment for people like Leo. But it is also a formative moment where they start to change their thinking and their approach about how these judicial battles, especially Supreme Court nomination battles, are waged. Clarence Thomas in 91, for which Leo had a front row seat. He was working on the Thomas confirmation team, very young at the time, 25 years old. Imagine being 25 and being in the middle of that battle. Obviously, that has a huge effect on Leo. And then the Casey case is really interesting. I'm glad you brought it up. This is in 92, Supreme Court rules five to four, essentially upholding Roe v. Wade, in this case, Planned Parenthood, Pennsylvania v. Casey. But what makes this decision so infuriating for conservatives is that the three judges who co-wrote the majority opinion, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter, are all Republican appointees, all put on the bench by Republican presidents. It is from this decision, in this moment, Leo especially has an understanding, comes to a realization that they can't just elect Republican presidents and let the president pick who they want to pick for the Supreme Court and expect that person to uphold conservative ideals, to be loyal to the cause, they, they're they going to have to cultivate, train, 
mentor, guide, and propel along their own conservative jurists, their future Scalia's, their future Clarence Thomas's, basically from law school all the way to the end of their life, or at least until they get on the bench. So this is a really key period. And, and I loved digging into the archives for this. I loved looking for those key moments that shaped how Leo then spent the next 30 years of his life. You do, it, it seems, and this is me reading between the lines of you reading between the lines, but it felt <laughs> yeah. to me like I could almost picture you in a very Robert Caro kind of way trying to put yourself into the mindset of this fascinating guy. Say what you will about him, and I have plenty I could say if I were off editorializing. He is fascinating, and he very cleverly, it seems, was willing to answer questions in writing in a very anodyne way. So it's much like the way he operates in general. It's like nothing shadowy going on here. Of course, there's a lot shadowy going on there. But yes, it did seem like there was this three-step process. The first realization around the Bork hearing was, whoa, the game has changed. This is a political battle. Yes. Step yes. two was the Thomas nomination, which is if we're going to win this, we're going we're gonna to get down in the muck and we're going to win this. Mm -hmm. yep. We're going to fight hard. We're going to fight dirty. And we're going to gut and grit our way through. And then, as you say, there's the Planned Parenthood decision, which is, you know what? We've got to, it's like the line from The Untouchables. If you're worried about getting a bad apple, don't take it from the barrel. Go to the tree. And Leonard mm. Leo oh, develops I this I wish I'd insight. thought of that. Jeez. <laughs> this, we'll workshop your next story together. Yes, I so, will. But, and Leonard Leo seems to, at that moment, realize, okay, we are going to start from the ground level. And this is a 30-year, we're going to play the long game. Mm -hmm. This is a 30-year yep. project. And that culminates in Dobbs and so much more. Let's talk a little bit about that 90s period into the 2000s. It's interesting because Leonard Leo, at this point, as you say, during the Thomas nomination, he's still young. He's, a, he's in the middle of it, but he's a relatively minor figure. He's not a heavy hitter. Right, and right. he makes this decision. He could take a, a law firm job or he could go to the Federal Society. And he seems to have the insight. It's like the movie, The Right Stuff. Do you know what makes these rocket ships go up? Funding. And he <laughs> decides he is going to be the money man, which was something that went back, you found in his high school yearbook. He was always the money bags guy, right? Money he bags kid was his nickname in high school. <laughs> the money bags kid. So he is going to, he is going to be the guy who has access to the money. That's step one. And then he emerges in the George W. Bush White House as, again, he's still a minor player, but he seems to realize he is going to always be in the room. He is always going to show up. And he, it's just like Robert Moses. He's going to be writing the notes. He's going to he's going to be present. And he is going to get his hand on the tiller somehow. That, that's what came across to me. Yeah, no, that's spot on. And it actually calling back to your, your description of Robert Moses, as told by Robert Caro, someone who always showed up, always took the, always took the notes, was always at the meetings. We interviewed Steve Schmidt, the well-known, I don't know if he's a Republican consultant anymore. He, he ain't Lincoln, anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. Lincoln Project. Not quite sure what, where Steve is at these days. But in, in the mid-2000s, Steve Schmidt was working in the White House, and he was the lead Bush White House aide for the judicial confirmation battles when the Supreme Court openings came up. Now, remember, Bush didn't get any openings in his first four years. And then all of a sudden, in 2005, he had two 
And there was a, a really a rush to try to get the right people in place to try to not make the mistakes of the Reagan White House, where a lot of people felt that the Reagan White House was unprepared for the attacks on Bork, hung him out to dry. Thomas obviously squeaks by barely. Narrowest margin for a Supreme Court confirmation vote in 100 years for Thomas. But what Schmidt told us is, is just like what Carol said of Moses, which is Schmidt had a quote, basically, if you think of these Supreme Court confirmation campaigns as like a PTA meeting, take it all the way down to the PTA meeting. Who is the person who ends up in charge and leading the way? It's the person who shows up to all the meetings. Yeah. And that was Leonard Leo. This is what it told us. There's one little story as well. It didn't make it into the piece, but I always thought was revealing as well about Leo, which was in 2004, I believe there was a guy named Deal Hudson, a, an influential activist in the conservative Catholic world, editor of Crisis Magazine, which was a big magazine um, for the Catholic community. Deal Hudson worked closely with Karl Rove as the sort of Catholic liaison to the Bush White House. And the Bush White House really tried to win back conservative Catholics in 2000. So I guess it would have been the Bush campaign in 2000. And then again in 2004. And then in 2004, this guy, Deal Hudson, gets wrapped up in a personal scandal, has to resign, cannot stay in his role connected to the, the Bush White House. And I, I talked to Deal Hudson for this story. And he said that after he announced his resignation, leading the Catholic Working Group is what it was called, the first person to call him was Leonard Leo. And Leonard Leo said, I want to take over your role. You're leaving. I, I want the role. I want to take it. And it wasn't like, so sorry to hear about your scandal or like, how are you doing? It was like, who's taking your role at the Catholic Working Group? I want it. And he got it. And when I talked to Deal Hudson about this almost 20 years later, he said, it's like, I kind of admire the hustle. His first thing he did was call me and say, I want that role. And, and so Leo really worked his way, muscled his way or outlasted his way into these influential positions. And then once he has these influential positions, once he's seen as someone who is close to President Bush, close to two Supreme Court justices that he helps confirm in John Roberts, and then Samuel Alito, once he is high up at the Federalist Society, which he was by the 2000s because he'd been there at that point for more than a decade, he also becomes this figure of influence in the donor world. And this is really key. It's, it's around the late 90s, 2000s, where Leonard Leo is not just some mid-level or mid to high-level director at this little legal group, the Federalist Society. He's someone who ha has been in the Oval Office is connected with the White House top aides, has wor worked on the Roberts campaign, worked on the Alito campaign, worked on the 2004 Bush re-election campaign when he said to Deal Hudson, I want your job. Deal Hudson said, okay. So he really starts to straddle all of these different worlds. And that also brings him into contact with all these big money donors. Right. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. If there is something we could learn, if there are young people out there who perhaps are considering a career in the dark arts or maybe want to do good, I, I that stood out to me, as well as the quote that you have later from the Reverend Rob Shank, Skank? Shank, yep. Shank, who said of his own kind of cozying up to figures of power in the right-wing judicial orbit, he said, I know how much it benefited me to say to donors, I was with Justice Scalia last night or last week, or 
I had a lovely visit with Justice Chum. Anybody can try and get change at the Supreme Court by filing an amicus brief, almost anybody, but how many people can get into chambers, or better yet, into a justice's home? You can almost see in the narrative that you just laid out the cunning genius of what Leonard Leo pulled off. Not that it wasn't legitimate at some level, but it seemed like he was playing a two-sided shell game where, on the one hand, he was doing the dirty work, in the 90s for the Federal Society, he quadrupled their fundraising. He was legit raising dollars for that group. And on the other hand, he was worming his way into these rooms of power and being in the room, in the mix, when these decisions were being made. And then he could basically play a game of telephone between those two sides. <laughs> he could go back to the donors and say, I have access. I was with the president yesterday talking about this decision. And when he's in the room, he can say, I have the resources of the base. And you lay this out, you hint at it a little bit in the failed nomination of Harriet Myers, President George W. Bush's counsel at the time. She was trotted out as the nominee. The right had a, meh, no, please don't do this, Mr. President, reaction to that. And Leonard Leo seemed to be the conduit for this. And he was then able to turn around and with the replacement nominee, which was Alito, I believe, <laughs> to bring to bear all of these massive resources, leveraging the lessons he learned during the Clarence Thomas nomination of, we are gonna treat this as a political campaign. We're gonna put the funding into it. We're gonna mm -hmm. run ads. We're gonna gin up the base. We're gonna make this a political thing at that point in the mid-2000s, his position of power was cemented. He had both sides working. He had access to the money, and he was able to use that money to get the results that the president wanted, and he was launched. He filled a role that no one has ever held before, and I don't think anyone has held since. Obviously, on the, on the conservative side, he is the guy, and there really isn't someone like this on the liberal side, as, as far as I can tell, and we've certainly tried to do our due diligence and figure this out. But we also talked to you know, historians of the Supreme Court, historians of American jurisprudence, and asked them, is there a precedent for Leonard Leo? And it was an interesting question for them, because as far as I could tell, they'd never been asked this before, but they could not think of someone who checked all these boxes that he did, who filled this very sort of singular, almost hard to define role that straddles politics and the courts and the big money. And then that's what made him so fascinating to us. And you brought up Reverend Shank, a fascinating guy in his own right. We did a, we did like a five hour interview on the record with him for the podcast with the microphones and everything. And I, I think in the podcast, we use very little of him. And in the piece, it's the same, but he was so fascinating. You know, he's an evangelical Protestant minister was for a long time a leading figure in the religious right, especially on anti-abortion and then the public displays of religion, like big crusader for, you should have the Ten Commandments outside City Hall and you can't ban us from doing that kind of thing. And then around the Trump campaign in 15 and 16, seeing his evangelical comrades lining up eventually behind Donald Trump, thanks in part to Leonard Leo's help. Shank has this, he has this sort of come to Jesus moment, for lack of a better way to put it. He's also reading Bonhoeffer at the time and thinking about Germany in the 1930s and decides that he's not going to associate himself with these people. But he had this great front row view to Leo 
during this period, we're talking about the 2000s, and he described him as a philosopher general, something else that didn't quite make it into the piece, sadly. As this guy who, when you were in a different part of the conservative movement and you heard that Leonard Leo was getting involved, or that in, case, in the case of Trump in 15, Leonard Leo is going to be, or I guess in 16, technically, Leonard Leo is going to be helping Trump on judges. It was like the ultimate sign of validation. The good like, housekeeping seal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Leonard Leo and the Federal Society are, are getting involved. Then we know we're in good hands. Leonard Leo is dealing with the judges. He's got us covered. We can hold our noses and vote for this guy or donate to him or whatever. And And there's just no one else who fills that role. There's no one else who has that kind of imprimatur or that reputation right. that Leo does, especially by the time we're talking about now, 2000s, 2010s. He does seem to have this genius for myth-making in a very, it's like the movie This is Spinal Tap. It, it's not like his popularity is limited. It's that he's playing to a selective audience, right? And <laughs> yeah. this is a guy who is very famous and has a mythical quality to him to a selected audience. As you were saying at the top, he's not a household name. He's not yeah. someone who's bandied about in the news. He's well-known in, on this show, I've talked to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse about him a couple of oh, times. Yeah. Believe me, power players know who the heck he is. And he seems to have kind of, through these mechanisms, through he has access to the money, he has access to the rooms, he's able to drive these outside political campaigns, and people begin to, he begins to develop a reputation. It's a little bit of, it's a little bit of admiration. It's a little bit of fear. And mm -hmm. we begin to see in your narrative, and by the way, I'm just giving the tip of the iceberg here in this show. I want people to read the piece. It's worth it. It's a little bit like the experience in miniature of reading The Power Broker. I do want people to get all of the vignettes, but this picture begins to emerge in your story toward the end of the 2010s of kind of everything we've seen in the last decade is now in, in full blossom with him. He is overseeing a network of organizations that are affiliated. In some cases, this is something we've gone over with Senator Whitehouse. In some cases, they're different legal entities that are on the same hallway in the same building, and they're like, they're the same thing. They're the same thing, except they're different legal entities, and they're moving money around in ways that even with all of your investigative reporting skills, we still can't fully track. We don't know where all of it's going to and coming from. Mm -hmm. And he's also beginning to operate more boldly as a power player behind the scenes. You tell this amazing anecdote about a pressure campaign that he put on Matt Blunt. And I, why don't you just, I, it, there, it's revealing. Take us through that. What happened there? So one of the things we really wanted to build out in the story, we wanted people to understand and appreciate about Leo is that his decades-long project is not just about Washington and the Supreme Court. It is about shaping the judiciary, shaping the legal system in the states as well, states all around the country, because states have their own state Supreme Courts, which are either appointed or elected. They have their own state attorneys general, which can bring lawsuits overturning policies in Washington. Those state AGs can be really influential, especially when they come together, form these coalitions, and then sue, say, the EPA or the, the SEC or sue some regulatory body in Washington. So Leo, early on, takes aim at Missouri. And Missouri is important for a couple of reasons. One, Missouri is about, to, at the time of this episode, Missouri is about to 
put a new judge on its state Supreme Court. There are several candidates for this, not for office, but produced by this panel. And I'll get to that in a second. And then the governor picks one of the options and puts them on the court. And Leo did not like the candidate that Governor Matt Blunt, then at the time, Governor Matt Blunt, a rising star in Missouri, did not like the candidate he was leaning toward. And so Leo plays bare knuckle politics and essentially says, if you put Patricia Beckbridge on the court, you're going to feel the fury of the conservative base like you've never felt before. And he, Leo is pressuring Blunt's chief of staff, a guy named Ed Martin, but really it's putting pressure on the governor. But it wasn't just about this one judge. Missouri was at the forefront of a, a model for putting judges on the bench that was trying to stay out of politics. Some states like Wisconsin, they elect their judges. Some states appoint their judges. There's a panel of experts. They all come together. They say, these are the three most qualified people. You, governor, take the pick. Leo and his allies did not like this model. They didn't. They thought it was wrong. They thought it took the, the power out of the voters' hands. They thought it was corrupt. It's also something that would be harder for them to control and intervene oh, yeah. in, as this incident shows. Of course, yeah. No root political action committees or dark money or outside donations in this commission model. This, this model is literally called the Missouri Plan because Missouri was the one that pioneered it and promoted it, and other states took it and ran with it. And so Leo and his allies also want to get rid of the Missouri Plan. They want it to go to elections that are like your elections for governor or for senator, you name it. And so he he really sounds like a sort of old school political boss in messages he's sending to Governor Matt Blunt's office. Now, what's interesting about this Missouri vignette in our story is that Leo does not succeed. It is an example of a defeat. And we thought it was important to be very accurate and clear on that. Just like with Robert Moses, they're not infallible, these powerful, influential figures. They lose. They face setbacks. But what's interesting is how do they learn from them? How do they take that knowledge that they've gleaned from this humbling setback and move on? And, and we saw it with what Leo and his allies went on to do in states like North Carolina, in states like Wisconsin, focusing on states where there are elections for judges, and then building these different pieces of infrastructure, outside groups and donations and federal society chapters in the states to try to change the composition of those state Supreme Courts. And they did do that in Wisconsin, and they did do that in North Carolina as well. Yeah, and you take us inside North Carolina and other states and, and how this plays out and all the way up to the Janet Prezeiwicz race that yep. just gone through in 2023. It stood out to me for a couple of reasons. One is that, first of all, I identified with the poor chief of staff. I will at another time tell the story of how I came under a similar pressure campaign from another notable figure when I was the chief of staff in Congress. It, it really the language that you unearthed of the email. It is so amazing. Leo writes to this chief of staff, to Martin. He will have, speaking of the governor, zero juice on the national scene if he ends up picking a judge who is a disgrace. Sounds very Trumpy in there. If this happens, there will be fury from the conservative base, the likes of which you and the governor have never seen. And after Blunt appoints Breckenridge anyway and goes against Leo, Leo piled on. He wrote, your boss is a coward and conservatives have neither the time nor the patience for the likes of him. But here's the stinger on it is that Blunt defied Leo. And a few months later, he surprised 
everybody by announcing he wasn't running for re-election at 37 years old, as you write in your story, his political career was over. So what really stood out to me from that is that Leo seems to always be thinking long-term. Yes, this was a fight about this judge, this particular appointment in one state, but it was really about a much larger enterprise. First of all, about this whole Missouri approach. And he wanted to make sure that at the state level, he could always be the one who had the money, who could run the political campaigns, who could make the decisions behind the scenes. He doesn't like any setup where there's political independence. He wants to be able to run it. And this is a 10 and 20 year plan to put himself in position to do. In a way, he's not that sorry that he lost that battle. He's now able to go around and say, and look what happened to this guy. He defied me and poof, his career was over. I can't help but think that only empowered Leo further. Another really fascinating thing that comes out, and this begins to invoke some of the work of your colleagues like Justin Elliott, previous guest on this show, is the dead mother story. The, the degree <laughs> of care and feeding that Leo puts into his relationships with the justices it really calls to mind that quote that you include from Reverend Shank, that he, this is part of his long game strategy, he ensures that he is keeping his, I don't know, his judicial children happy, fed, quite literally, stuffed with curried prawns and champagne, and flying off to far-flung fishing trips in Alaska, and things of that ilk. He makes sure, and it, it, it seems to serve all of his purposes. He keeps them happy, he keeps his relationships intact, and he's able to whisper about his incredible level of access to his fundraising base. It, it's really amazing. What is this den mother thing? The den mother tagline comes from George Conway, of course, today is known for being one of the most outspoken, never figures out there, former husband to Kellyanne Conway, the Trump pollster, still pretty prominent in Republican circles. But what made George such a great interview was until about 2015, George was a dyed in the wool member of the conservative legal movement. Like he, th these were his people. Leonard Leo was someone he knew and knew fairly well to hear George tell it. And George was, and, and Kellyanne together were big donors to the Federalist Society. They were in the, the donor tier, which is laid out in the Federalist Society's annual reports between 50,000 and $100,000. So we're not talking chump change here over multiple years. And, and George, as he told me, you know, was actually in these rooms where Leo, the den mother came out. And one example of this is there was this dinner that Leo would help organize during the annual Federalist Society National Convention. This is nerd prom for conservative and libertarian lawyers. It happens every year, usually end of the year, like late November or so, usually in Washington. And for a time, Conway was a celebrity at these things because he's well-known, he's a prominent litigator, he's a big donor to the Federalist Society. And he was invited to a couple of these dinners that Leo would put together. And you know, these dinners were just the perfect little encapsulation of this den mother moniker, or really of how Leo operated in these you know, elite circles, which is very fancy restaurant, small guest list, and the invitees would be one or two justices, 
They would be maybe some prominent political figures. Scott Pruitt, the former Oklahoma attorney general, EPA chief under Trump, attended one of them. Don McGahn, the incoming White House counsel for Trump, attended one in one of these dinners in late 2016. But then you had like major donors to the Federalist Society. Leo didn't actually have to whisper to the donors about his friendships, his relationships with Alito or Scalia or Thomas. He brought them all together in one place, and it was just there to be seen. And Leo would say, I'm showing them a good time. These are all my friends. These are all my professional contacts. Conway said, that may be true, but also it goes both ways. It it burnishes Leo's influence, makes him look even more powerful to the donors, helps perhaps the donors want to give more money when they see how connected and influential Leo is. But it all feeds into itself. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. He is Horace Slughorn. He's running the Slug Club. And it does. It Why say what you can show? Because the story of these dinners, everybody, except for maybe the justices, is bragging about it. The word gets around. And it's really amazing. And it during this period, now we're really, we're really knocking on the door of present day. But over the last nine or 10 years, we have a figure in here. Tax records show that between 2014 and 2020, the groups that he runs raised more than $600 million. And as Senator Whitehouse said on this show, that we know about, there's plenty that we don't know. That's probably yep. the tip of the iceberg. What are they doing during this time? What we know is a lot of care and feeding of these justices, a lot of cultivation of uh, this kind of like, it works both ways, cultivation of keeping them happy, cultivating the donor base, showing how much juice they have. And then a lot of this even further behind the scenes work down several rungs in the judicial firmament where they're getting involved in these attorneys general races and these prosecutorial races, these judge races, they're really shaping who's getting picked. And if you are a political figure in, in Republican in the Republican Party and you do anything to defy Leonard Leo and his will and his list, your career looks short. And he's probably glad that he had that setback with Matt Blunt. It's a realization, you and I, again, when we were talking before the show, I was likening it to the to a moneyball insight that he had that there was an undervalued rung of not only the judicial level, but the political level in American life, where there's all of these incredibly powerful, influential positions that he could steer. And you quote Carolyn Fred, another former guest on this show, saying that it was really the left, this is her quote, even though we are somewhat court worshipers, never understood the potency of the courts as a political machine on the right, they did. And as much as I hate to say it, you've really got to admire what they achieved. And that seems to be basically the mode he was in, in this period, which very much included Donald Trump essentially turning over all of his judicial selections, whole, cut from whole cloth to Leonard Leo. Yeah. The 2015, 2016, 2017 little window there is a fascinating small period. If we're looking at the larger timeline of this story, it's fascinating because this candidate emerges as the Republican nominee in Donald Trump, who, frankly, in so many ways is anathema to Leonard Leo 
and to the conservative legal movement. The guy is mostly illiterate about the Constitution and has no problems wiping his nose with it if it gets in the way of something that he wants to do. However, he's going to be the guy. He is going to be the nominee. And you see a level of pragmatism and strategic thinking there, strategic re, re, repositioning in real time by the conservative legal folks, by the Federalist Society types, Leo being at the top of the list, to say, look, if this guy's going to be the guy, then we need to get behind him. We need to figure out what we can do to try to get him over the finish line. You know, They don't want Hillary Clinton becoming president for a lot of reasons, but chief among them is that they don't want a Democrat filling Antonin Scalia's empty seat on the Supreme Court. That is the seminal moment of the 2016 campaign for the legal folks is that Scalia dies, this seat is vacant, the fate of the Supreme Court. And I will say that there is a, I don't recall seeing this, but I just remember it from the time that there was still a, a question in the Republican Party about whether the most conservative elements of the base would accept Donald Trump, whether his nomination would fracture the party. And there was a belief at the time that he was actually a moderate, that he was a closet moderate. As a matter of fact, polling in 2016 showed that a majority of Republican voters thought he was a moderate. And of course, it was popular in Republican circles to say, oh, once he's in office, we'll calm him right the heck down. Don't yeah. you worry, he'll become normalized. But the, the concern from the right wasn't, is this guy a, a nut job? Is yeah. he stable? Is he a very stable genius? The concern was, is he conservative? Is he going to give us another David Souter? And it was an incredibly critical moment in his path to the presidency where to quell that political fire, he released a list of justices that he would potentially nominate. Here is the list. Who handed him the list? Who handed him the keys to persuading and mollifying the conservative base? You guessed it, Leonard Leo. So it, it's, it, it is this kind of, it's a pragmatism. It's a kind of shifting, like this is where the wind is blowing. But he also enabled it. He also captured Donald Trump along the way. Yeah. And if there are two big themes that, that I've always pulled out of that moment, the moment where Leo decides we're going to help Trump and the list comes into play to try to get those wobbly evangelicals, to get those wobbly conservative legal types out there on board with Trump. Those two themes are this. One is the one you just described, the sort of sense of pragmatism. Again, I don't think from all of the reporting that we've done that Leonard Leo is necessarily a big personal fan of Donald Trump or stylistically, personality-wise, the way they choose to live their lives. I don't necessarily know if they are, would be pals, even though I think Leo respects Trump to some degree. He says, this is the guy who we got to get on board with. This is the guy who's going to get us what we want, which is a conservative Supreme Court, which is conservative judges all the way down the list. But also, Leo could not have stepped aside, come up with a list of names if he had not put this pipeline into motion, built the pipeline and then put it into motion starting in the early 1990s. This is getting back to what we talked about earlier with right. the Casey decision no more suitors was the rallying cry. No more David suitors, you know, sort of Republican imposter, conservative imposter justices. He could not have come up with the list, incredibly put it out there and said, this list is going to allay the concerns of all of those evangelicals, those voters who are so afraid of you, Donald Trump. If he had not built all of this stuff, if he had not played 
this long game. He, Leo did not build the pipeline thinking, okay, one day a former Democrat real estate billionaire from New York City is going to be the Republican nominee and I'm going to need to give him a list. Like he didn't know that was going to happen. There's an element of chance and luck here. When that moment presented himself, all of that long game, all of those 30 years of work, he could come up with that list and it all you know built to that. The list was a product of that. And obviously it worked. The polling after the election showed that the Supreme Court was near or at the top of the list for evangelical voters, for sure, and lots of other ones as well. Right. It did work. It was his doing. You you could argue that his intervention and his, I used the word quelling before, but his quelling of this unrest in the base is what gave Donald Trump the presidency. And the payback, you also put this in the story, was that Donald Trump appointed 231 judges to the bench in his four years. Of all of them, this includes the circuit courts and the Supreme Court, 6% were former or current Federalist Society members. You think about where Leonard Leo started off in the Federalist Society, and 30 years later, this is the payoff. And yet, most disturbing of all to someone like me, at this moment, it's like, Bobby Fischer, you're the world chess champion. I resign. I'm going to become a hermit. <laughs> Something really strange happens in this like 2020, 2021 period. All of a sudden, Leonard Leo gets a $1.6 billion contribution from an even shadowier figure than Harlan Crow. You thought Harlan Crow was the Marvel supervillain of the right wing firmament. Yeah, let me introduce you to Barry Side. That's all I can do because we know nothing else about this man. He is a mystery wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a vest. I don't know anything about him except the fact that he gave $1.6 billion, no strings attached, or maybe some strings attached, who knows, to Leonard Leo. And Leonard Leo announces that he is stepping away from this role that he has built over 40 years. And now his focus is going to be something else and something that I find very disturbing given his track record. What what happens here? Yeah, he steps away at his Bobby Fischer world champion moment, but rather than fading into the sunset and, I don't know, retiring and collecting stamps or wine for the rest of his life, he decides he wants to broaden his mission. He decides he it is his role, it is his calling to take everything that he's learned from the late 80s to 2020 and apply those strategies, apply that thinking, apply those lessons to as much of the rest of American society as he possibly can. He wants to take the Federalist Society for Law model and start building the Federalist Society for everything else. And that is the thing that we really wanted to try to better understand reporting on him. And we did we did some reporting earlier this year on this subject, and then we did some more with this most recent set of stories in the podcast, of course, about Leo. But yeah, Leo is not resting on his laurels. He could. And I think that the donation that Barry Side basically put Leo in charge of and trusted him with, $1.6 billion, was very much a recognition of what Leo had done at the Supreme Court, the rest of the federal courts, the state courts, a recognition of his life's work up to that point. But it was also very much a mandate to take this money and go out and do all of those things that you've done in the courts to everything else, education, media, elect electoral politics, 
the culture wars, LGBT rights, they would call it woke gender identity ideology, that kind of language. But yeah, to go out and do more of it and to spend more money. 600 million between 2014 and 2020, that's pretty small compared to 1.6 billion just put into the bank account of this group, Marble Freedom Trust, of which Leonard Leo is the trustee. So it's a pretty staggering point in the timeline. And honestly, it was it was the event that really snapped me personally into focus on writing about. about. I followed him during the Trump years. Right. I understood what he did. I had a pretty good sense of who he was. But then when this 1.6 billion comes along, that was he's not just the 1.6 billion. That's not the only thing that matters, but it put this punctuation point at the end that really made me think, okay, wait a minute. This guy is even more powerful than I realized. This guy is even more worthy of some real classic ProPublica reporting than I thought before. I would never tell an experienced investigative journalist what to do next, but I have a feeling that you're not done because for me... I also, this was an oh shit moment for me. This realization that one of the most important figures, as I said at the top, in American politics over the last 40 years has embarked on this new quest, this very consequential quest to entirely remake culture and politics in America. And he has a track record that he suggests that suggests he knows exactly how to do projects like this over the long term. Mm -hmm. He has a ton of money that we know about. And I can't I, I just want to commend to people the deep dive we did with Senator Whitehouse last year on just the tip of the iceberg that we know about the potential for foreign sources of money, dark money, Putin money. Again, we just, there's, I'm going to sound Rumsfeldian about this, but there are unknown unknowns here <laughs> that I think should give everyone pause. Let me get you out of here on this. Again, I don't want to give away the store on what is a fascinating read or listen if people want to hear this as a podcast, but I love to ask investigative reporters. It's like that scene from all the president's men where they're in the library of Congress and they're just like oh, they're looking at this stuff and it's they're just going through the papers, going through the papers. Like Robert Caro says, read every damn page. Yep. Do you have a moment when you were looking at one of the damn pages in the thousands mm. that you must have consulted and you just, or maybe a, an interviewer you were doing where you just went, oh my gosh, what did I just see? What did I just hear? Is there something that really took you aback? Oh God, there were so many of those moments that I... Yeah, there are so many. We work like on picking our... among your children. I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I would honestly, I would go back to, you know what I'll tell you, actually? I'll give two, 1.5, but two. So the first one is when we interviewed Reverend Rob Shank in Alexandria, Virginia, where he's based out of. I love that interview because it really just helps to, when you're trying to understand someone who is your sort of central figure, it's so helpful to find one person, a person who's one or two degrees separated from your subject someone who's observed your subject from a near to middle distance over a period of time. And they just give you that perspective that you don't have because you weren't there. When Shank described Leo to us as the philosopher general and that, that he led the, this movement of conservative Catholics and evangelical conservatives and a whole bunch of other folks. And he was the kind of both intellectual, but also strategist of this of the, of this coalition. I thought that was fascinating. But the other one I'll say, this happened early in the reporting process, was 
we were making all of these calls and we were not hearing back from people. And what we eventually realized, and in one particular source's case, I have to be careful how I describe this, but one particular source's case, we, we realized that everyone that we were going, we were reaching out to was immediately taking our questions and our comments straight back to Leo's, to Leo HQ, for lack of a better way to put it, to wow. his, his the company he now runs. And in particular, there was, there's, there was one really esteemed scholar. I'm not going to name because I don't want to, there's some sourcing stuff there. I don't want to get him in trouble, but there's one, one particular very esteemed scholar who to our mind was like, he's his own guy. He's an award-winning, he's at a really impressive university, famous person in his world. Yeah. And when we reached out to him, we didn't hear back, but ultimately realized that he had sought, sent our request or sought permission or whatever from Leo HQ and basically was told, no, you don't need to do that, or we don't want you to do that. Or whatever the reason was, we did not hear back. And it really underscored for us this sort of level of, I don't know if it's control or interconnect there was just a real sense i think for some people it was a fear some people it was a, a sense of caution uh, that you did not want to step out of line when it came to leonard leo you did not want to be seen as speaking out of turn to a member of the press about him and that just happened over and over again and it, it, it occurred in a way that i to a degree that i have never experienced and i've written about tons of prominent public figures, politicians, major donors, you name it, other activist operatives all across the political spectrum. I've never encountered that as much as we encountered on this story. And perhaps that's why you ended up titling your piece, We Don't Talk About Leonard, the man behind the right's Supreme Court supermajority, which is an outstanding read. You can find it on the ProPublica website. You can also find the podcast version of this, which I look, I, I love podcasts. I do a podcast. I'm a fan <laughs> worth listening to Andy Kroll. Thanks so much for you and your full team, all your work and for being on Beyond Politics. It's a real pleasure. I love this conversation. Thanks for having me.